Hello, and welcome back to the Tough Take Podcast. I'm Zach Green. And I'm Luca DeLosta. In today's episode, we will be recapping the Super Bowl 56, interviewing Mr. Mike Farrell, talking about the recent news in the Olympics, and going over the NFL awards. Let's get into it. All right, let's start with yesterday's Super Bowl 56. I watched a few. I do have to say, I will give a big who day because we did beat the Chiefs. We did beat the Chiefs, but none of that really mattered when we got to this game. Luca, what were your initial thoughts? My initial thought is, what a game it was. 23-20, to 20, an amazing halftime show. What could you ask for? It's a Super Bowl Sunday. If I had one big takeaway from this Bengals defense, you can't run on them with ease. Cam Akers, 13 carries for 21 yards, 1.6 yards per carry. The Rams had to lean heavy on Matthew Stafford and Cooper Cup because Cam Akers was doing nothing. And I saw something saying, like, if you take away that Cooper Cup rush on that fourth down and a Matthew Stafford scramble, I think the Rams ran for 1.2 yards a carry. That is horrendous. The Bengals pass rush in this game. They forced Matthew Stafford to make some tough throws, but it only resulted in two sacks. The Matthew Stafford t- tough throws that we saw, one of them was an interception that was kind of slightly underthrown, I think. But what the Bengals did, they made him, he made them throw outside the numbers, which in Luana Rumu. Outside the numbers for Matthew Stafford did not look that comfortable. He had some good passes. There was one of Van Jefferson that was a pretty good pass that you couldn't reel in. But a lot of them, I don't know if you recognize this, a lot of the passes on the outside, I think some third down, Doral Henderson got involved in that. He got, I think, three or four targets on the outside. And you, every time he checked into the game and he lined up against the linebacker, you were confident, and then they'd always go back to him. But you also have to take into account that this Bengals defense is a good defense inside the numbers. And I saw a stat. I don't remember it off the top of my head. But they're very good at forcing teams to put balls on the outside of numbers, on the outside of the numbers, which, as you were saying, are very, it's tougher on a QB because you have the sideline and then you have the defender. So the window of opportunity to make that throw is just smaller. Yeah, from my memory, I think there was maybe one or two Cooper Cup plays that were outside the numbers that he took for a good amount of yards. But besides that, there was really nothing. Cooper Cup, I think the biggest play of the game for him was probably on that last drive. It was probably, I think, a 20, 25-yard completion right over in the middle, besides from the touchdowns that he had. But I think that was probably the biggest play because they were driving down the field, but with the time they had, it was in three, four-yard increments. That was one of the best plays they had that drive. Or that fourth down run where you had Trey Hendrickson or Sam Hubbard Taking the outside away, you had Von Bell running up the middle, cuts it upfield, it just new set of downs, and that's where you said Cooper Cup's a good player and he will make big time plays. A good player that did not make a big time play, Tyler Boyd did not drop a pass all season, and I think third and nine, last time Joe Burrow had a really good pass, Tyler Boyd. Dropped it. I think he would have pushed for the first down. It was, it was very different to see him drop it in this sort of game because he's always been a security blanket for Joe Burrow. 
you and I both were just like stunned. I I did not expect, but he just turned his head, went upfield a little too early. Got to make sure you have the ball in your hands. But I don't know. I, it was just the Bengals played a very strong and well played game. They just they couldn't finish in the fourth quarter. Let's talk about the second half. The Bengals offensive line coming out of the second half was atrocious i think two drives in a row i think they had four sacks total they ran through disguising a lot of von miller inside cuts he came inside a lot and that caused some communication errors but you can't always stop aaron donald the first half he was limited can't stop him forever he made his impact known especially even if he didn't get the sack Double, triple teams, the attention he draws. And then, like we said before, Joe Burrow not being that comfortable. I only saw a couple comfortable passes from him. I think right out the gate to T. Higgins. And I think a couple then to Jamar. But he was never really set in the pocket. And I, the big difference almost, you could say the, the switch of momentum, especially from Aaron Donald's perspective, was that play where Joe Burrow was running out of bounds, but he was still in play. Aaron Donald pushed him out, and then the Bengals were not happy with it. And I feel like that's the moment where Aaron Donald got angry. And when you make Aaron Donald angry, he's not a man to mess with. I think that got the train rolling for him. Definitely. But I want to go to, do you think Cooper Cup's Super Bowl MVP was deserving, or would you have liked to seen it go to Stafford? I think Cooper Cup deserved it, the game he had, the season he had. I think Aaron Donald was more deserving than Matthew Stafford. Matthew Stafford played an efficient game. I wouldn't say he played a great game. He had some bad throws. He had some misreads. He had some mistiming plays. I think Aaron Donald had a bigger presence, but I think Cooper Cup definitely deserved it. But let's talk about, like I said, at school, Jalen Ramsey who – T. Higgins on a questionable face mask call. There were some questionable calls in this game. But you cannot deny Jamar Chase had him beat a couple times. And one of the times he caught it for, like, I think, 43 yards. But I want to touch on this, Luca. I've been looking at this picture all day. The last play of the game for the Bengals. Jamar Chase. Jalen Ramsey slipped. The picture we have here. Joe Burrow is in the hands of Aaron Donald, which you're not getting away from like you did from Chris Jones. I think Jamar is maybe 15, 20 yards downfield. Joe Burrow had, I think, a couple more seconds. What would that picture look like? That would have been a dot, but that goes back to what we said. is First half offensive line through second half offensive line for the Bengals was a big difference in story. But another question I have for you is, Let's say the Bengals had won this game. Who do you think the MVP would have gone to? Well, I think if that was a Jamar Chase touchdown, let's just say what if. I'm not sure, but at that moment, if the Bengals won, I think I'd probably give it to the Higgins. I have to agree with you there. Two touchdowns? You can't really go away from that. Like, Cup got two touchdowns, and I think the same amount of yards. Cup got 99 all purpose, so I think, yeah, that's about the same. Yeah, T. Higgins had 100. My final question for this game. Why wasn't Joe Mixon in the last two plays? And that's what we were wondering after that play, before the last play of offense for the Bengals. They had Samaji P. Ryan in, and 
Joe Mixon was running on four point, I believe, eight yards per carry that game. Why would you not stick with him? I think it was in the hands of Aaron Donald, but Joe Mixon, I think, could have gotten that first down on the third and one run. And that's kind of it's the Super Bowl's on the line. Samaji Pirine made no last ditch effort to catch that throw that Joe Burrow threw on his way to the ground. Wasn't the most accurate, but I think he could have done something. Yeah, who knows? He could have dove, maybe. And now we'd like to move into our interview with Mr. Mike Farrell. And now we'd like to welcome to the show Mr. Mike Farrell, the Assistant Athletic Director for Broadcasting Production at UMD as of now. But Mr. Farrell, would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I actually got a promotion, so I'm now the Associate AD for Broadcast and Production at the University of Maryland. Uh, we'll be here for about three years. March 22nd will be my three-year anniversary. And before that, worked at NBC Sports Washington and then the University of South Florida before that. And then a little school in Daytona Beach, Florida uh, called Embry-Riddle. Uh, where I worked for four and a half years before that and was a basketball coach, college basketball coach for four years prior to that. So long and winding road to get where I'm at, but here we are. How are you fellas? Doing good. My team just came off a Super Bowl loss, so I'm hanging in there. Mm, yeah, I see that Joe Burrow photo right there. I'm sorry. And then I'm doing good. And then obviously congratulations on the promotion. Hey, thank you. Appreciate that. How and when did you choose broadcasting and production to be your field of choice? Uh, it's a very good question. I have always enjoyed video work, um, but I kind of got into this a little haphazardly. Starting off with coaching, I always enjoyed breaking down game tape and doing highlights and all that good stuff. And then I was working in marketing, um, but thought that video was the best way to get your point across and do great storytelling and sort of fell in love with that. Um, and there's, I don't think that there's a better medium to do it than through video and broadcasting. So stuck with that, um, did some, did some long hours, uh, did a lot of tutorials on YouTube to figure out what I was doing, but, uh, here we are. And I think the, I think the extra effort paid off pretty well. Obviously it did. And then also you said you coached basketball at, and I'm pretty sure it was at Lafayette college. Mm -hmm. But you also played there, I believe. And could you give a little insight on maybe how that influenced your decision to go and stay in the sports world? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was everything to me. Uh, loved playing college basketball. Lafayette's a little small school up in like an hour north of Philadelphia. Um, Division one program in the Patriot League. Uh, we never made it to the tournament. They had made it to the, to the tournament the two years before I got there. And then they made it again in 2015. But since I had arrived on campus, they hadn't made it in a, in a long time. So it's probably on me. But loved my time playing. Um, and just being in that sports environment was kind of that thing I've been chasing ever since. Uh, I love competing. I love trying to be the best. And uh, I think we're building something pretty cool here at the University of Maryland. We found that you manage the creative content at the University of South Florida and that mm -hmm. you develop content plans for original content at the NBC Sports Washington. Could you explain the difference between the two? 
Yeah, it's a little bit different when you're working on a team side versus uh, like a network side. So when you're with a team, obviously you have a lot easier access to the players um, and recruiting, especially when you work at a college is a, is a very big thing. That's where you spend most of your time. So creating a lot of graphics, creating a lot of video content to help the coaching staff and recruiting coordinators um, all recruit the best talent to Tampa where USF is. And then when I was at NBC Sports Washington, came in as a producer editor, uh, doing a lot more highlights for digital content and then got an opportunity uh, to take a little bit bigger role and do some longer form storytelling on the digital side. So uh, it wasn't really about recruiting, but it was about trying to tell great stories. So there's a, a similarity there where, you know, when you're recruiting kids, you're telling them the story about why they should attend a school. Um, and what we were doing at NBC Sports Washington was trying to find the best stories from the players uh, and teams in this area and do the best job that we could of telling those stories. And then working with players, it seems like at both USF and at NBC Sports Washington, did you have like a favorite player to work with? <laughs> um, that's a great question. There are, there's a lot of really cool stories that are out there. Um, I think Dearness Johnson is a very cool story. Um, he was at USF, he was a running back, and then Marlon Mack and Quentin Flowers, those three guys were just unbelievable. Um, Quentin Flowers' story is, is insane. He's, I don't know if he's still trying to play pro football, but he was, uh, he was in the Arena League for a little bit, um, and he's overcome a tremendous amount, so his story's awesome. Dearness Johnson, his story's awesome. Uh, and then we did something with DJ Swearinger, uh, who was with the Redskins, the Washington football team, the commanders. Um, and we followed him down to Miami where he was working out for a summer and trailed him for a couple of days and got to shoot some really cool content with him. And he was just, he was an unbelievable host to us. So it was cool to get to know him on a little bit more of a personal level um, and have him share a story with us. Yeah, we can see this season, Dearness Johnson uh, did pretty well. But yeah, at, man. Also at NBC Sports Washington, you did a lot of work with short for short, short uh, film documentaries, including mm -hmm. one about Tom Wilson. What was the process really like? Yeah, my my wife actually just got a job with the Cap, so shout out her, Kendall Butters, now the director of marketing with the Washington Capitals. Um, Tom Wilson was great too. That was a fun piece, um, and we got a we got a. It was fun working at an NBC uh, regional network. Uh, because we were able to release that in conjunction with the Capitals playing the Penguins um, that year. And that was a national broadcast. So we got a little shout out on NBC Sports, which was cool. Um, but we worked really, really closely with the Caps. Uh, we've got NBC Sports Washington does an unbelievable job broadcasting all of their games. And so there's a really good relationship with the team already in place. And uh, it was a guy who had sparked a lot of interest and played really well coming off of the Stanley cup. And we had a good opportunity to sort of tell his story a little bit more um, and do a sit down interview with him and ask him some questions and follow him during practice uh, during training camp. So he was great. His story was great. And, you know, he's a polarizing figure. So um, that'll always, that'll always get you some views having a polarizing figure.
Yep, definitely. Maybe for the Caps and all, but for other fan bases such as the Penguins, he's <laughs> not very prominent as a figure. Well, he's he's still uh, he's not well liked probably by any of those other fan bases. He's one of those guys where you want him on your team, and if he's not on your team, you're not going to like him a whole lot. So glad the Caps have him. Definitely. But you also, to my understanding, make highlight reels and hype up videos for UMD football, basketball, et cetera. And what is the really process of going through one of those videos like? Yeah, well, I have a really good staff here at Maryland. So I'm a little bit more removed from the creation of some of that stuff now. Um, but we've got, you know, Stephen Jenkins is our football creative director, which was a similar role I had at USF. And Connor Bash does it for the men's team and, and Jared Bellman does it for the women's team for basketball here at Maryland. Um, but it's really about trying to find high energy pieces and high energy shots and match it to the music and create something that, you know, when we, when we play it in venue and we put it up on the video board, we want people to stand up and we want people to get excited. So does it pass that test? Does it make people stand up a little bit, bring them to attention and make them want to cheer? So that's what we that's what we strive to do with those hype pieces. Yeah, especially for these big games, looking at all the hype videos there for all teams and all sports get very mm -hmm. uplifting. Yeah. But now now that you're the associate athletic director for broadcasting and production at UMD, what can you walk us through what the position is is really like? Yeah, so I have two sides to my department. We've got as the the name states, we got the broadcast side, which kind of oversees our relationship with the Big Ten Network and all of the games that they don't pick up, we will stream um, through Big Ten Plus. Um, so people pay a little, little bit of money every month. They can watch all of the Terps games. Um, and Thomas Mason on my staff oversees that, does an incredible job, but we, we really work hand in hand with our students and try and build them opportunities so that they can learn what a technical director does, a director does, um, build out graphics packages and all that stuff, just like it's going on a linear network and on TV. Um, and they do a really good job of, of building out those shows and creating storylines. Um, and also included in that is uh, our in-venue shows, which you see on the video board, which is very different. We have a different set of cameras uh, specifically for in-venue, we have different videos that we build out from like team intro and more historical pieces and things to get people hyped up in the crowd. Um, and so that's that's kind of what we do on the broadcast side. It's what are we putting on display uh, for people to watch? And then on the production side, you could equate that a little bit more to like creative video. Uh, so we're storyboarding, you know, all of the different hype pieces, intro videos, creating those, shooting those. Um, and we got a really cool staff that does some great stuff across all of our different sports teams uh, here at Maryland for that. And when you say people pay a little extra where they can see all the broadcasted games on uh, Big Ten Network Plus, is that something mm -hmm. similar to the Terrapin Club Plus and this Terrapin Club mm -hmm. Reinvented that I, from my understanding, you helped a lot in creating? Yeah, no, it's very different. Um, so the network owns all of our games. Uh, so we get we get paid some money depending on how good those broadcasts are. So we want to do a great job and 
put out the best broadcast we can. And then Terrapin Club Plus is uh, very different. Uh, so that is much more original digital content where we are we have a, a paywall and, and put some content behind that paywall, similar to what people do with Hulu and Amazon Prime and Netflix. Um, we don't quite have the same budget that those entities do, but I think we've been able to create some really cool and compelling content that tells the stories of Maryland athletics throughout its history and, and what's happening this year uh, with our current student athletes. What's been your favorite part of your journey so far? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. You meet a lot of good people, I think, in this industry. Um, everywhere I've worked, you know, I was actually just down in Florida um, visiting my folks last week and letting them see their their granddaughter and got a chance to go back to Embry-Riddle and, and see all those people. And it was like, you know, I had never left. And my last day working there was 2012. So uh, it was fun to reconnect with all of those people. And no matter where you go, it's going to be like that. You're going to see people that you haven't in a while, but you'll be able to reconnect with them instantaneously. So I think that's probably the best part of this job is you work with some really, really good people. And we got one more. It's a little off what we were just talking about, but I have to know what was going through your mind when you created your incredible LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Uh, I had a feeling that that was going to be the question. Um, so there was a book that came out in like 2003, I think. Uh, it was called This Book Will Change Your Life. And I bought it and it had one thing to do every day for 365 days. And one of them was to write a letter requesting knighthood. So that is my letter to request knighthood from then Prime Minister Tony Blair. Uh, the queen only gives you the sword tap on the shoulder, but the, the prime minister is the one who approves who gets knighted. So that's from 2004. That is my, my plea to become a knight. And I have yet to hear anything back from the British government, unfortunately. Well, you heard it from me. You get, I will give you the applause and the approval because it is incredible, but. I appreciate that. With that, we just want to say thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course. This is cool. I'm glad you guys are doing this, and good luck with the project. Thank you. And now let's get into the Olympics. So far, Norway leads in total medals with 21 and 9 golds, and U.S. sits at third with 7 gold medals and 16 total medals. And now let's get into some spectacular moments so far in this Olympics. Japanese snowboarder Keishu Hiranu, hope I said that right, sets the world record for the highest halfpipe air with a 24-inch jump. That is sick. Then U.S. figure skater Nathan Chen sets world record in the short program with a score of 113.97 and then has an amazing free skate which wins him the gold. Lindsay Jacob Ellis and Nick Baumgartner win the gold in the first ever Olympic mixed team snowboard cross. And apparently, Nick Baumgartner was the oldest man to do it at age 40, I believe. And then you have American Chloe Kim became the first ever woman to win back-to-back -back golds in the snowboard halfpipe. She did it 
off what she claimed as the worst practice ever. So, big one there. 15-year-old Camila Vailia became the first ever woman to land a quad at the Olympics. However, she did test positive for using TMZ, a drug that is usually used to treat chest pain and was added as prohibited substance in 2014. This could cause her to potentially lose her gold medal. And then we have American snowboarder Sean White, whose competitors lined up after his final run to congratulate him on an amazing career. Unfortunately, White finished fourth, just missing out on the podium. And then we have U.S. speed skater Erin Jackson became the first black woman to win Olympic gold in speed skating. She did it in just 500 meters. And now let's move on to some surprising moments of this Olympics, starting with Michaela Schifrin, U.S. skier who had a ton of praise coming into these games, skied out early in the giant slalom, and then was disqualified in the slalom after missing a gate. This is Schifrin's first Olympics without her dad. Could that have an impact on her mentality or emotional state? It probably could. Having that emotional support system there is really good for all athletes. But let's hope she gets back on track in these Olympic Games before they end. Now, let's move on to the NFL awards that happened just recently. Let's go over them and our thoughts. Okay, let's start off with the first MVP. If Aaron Rodgers, the votes Aaron Rodgers had 39, Tom Brady 10, and Cooper Cup had 1. I agree with that one. I thought Aaron Rodgers played amazing this year. Well-deserved, only Tom Brady was the contender. I think Aaron Rodgers was expected to win it. He did win it, and I think he deserved to win it. And then Offensive Player of the Year, Cooper Cup. He had, he had 35, Jonathan Taylor had 10, Tom Brady with 3, Aaron Rodgers with 2. A question that surprises me about this award if the MVP is an offensive player, how does that offensive player of the year with the MVP? I don't really get how the NFL works in that way because Aaron Rodgers had two votes, but then he had 39 for MVP. So, I think it's weird because if you get MVP, I don't think your chances of getting offensive player of the year are high because they they probably give it to two different players who played outstanding just in different ways. But defensive I definitely agree with Cooper Cup getting offensive player of the year. Defensive Player of the Year. T.J. Watt got 42, Michael Parsons 3, Aaron Donald 3, T.J. Watt played out of his mind, tied sack record. Uh, I don't think this was a question. Miles Garrett wasn't even considered. I don't think he, he should have been. He maybe cut him, you know, one. T.J. Watt tied the sack record. No one else is catching up to that. Move on to my Bengal Offensive Rookie of the Year. Jamar Chase blew it out of the water. He had 42, Max Jones had 5, Creed Humphrey 2. Sean Slater won. I think it's pretty cool. Two offensive linemen got a vote. But, I mean, at the end of the season, you look at Jamar Chase's 266-yard performance. I think that was the icing on the cake. But it's strange because midseason, those odds, like the betting odds for this were way different. You had Mac Jones a favorite. The gap between them t the two increasing, but Jamar Chase just played out of his mind. Well-deserved. Defensive Rookie of the Year, this wasn't even a conversation. No one else was even considered. Micah Parsons, unanimous 50 votes, well-deserved. He is outstanding. Comeback player of the year, a little closer. Joe Burrow had 28. Dak Prescott, 21. Durbin James won. I would like to see Nick Bosa maybe with a couple of votes, but Joe Burrow, deserving of it. Definitely deserving, but the reason it's a lot closer is because they only count regular season. If you count postseason, Joe Burrow would have won this, I think, unanimously. 
coach of the year. I think Mike Vrabel deserved it. Like we said, they don't count postseason. They did. I think Zach Taylor would have obviously won it. Mike Vrabel had 25 votes. Matt LaFleur, 8. Rich Passaccia had 3. Zach Taylor, 2. Bill Belichick, 1. Uh, the only one I think that could compete in this was Matt LaFleur. If we're counting regular season, they generally go to the coach with the best record. But there was plenty of coaches that coached very good teams this year. I think the most prestigious award would go. Walter Payton, Man of the Year. Andrew Whitworth, former Bengal, on the Rams, has won the Super Bowl. I think he's going to retire. He had an amazing career. A couple Pro Bowls, two first-team All-Pro. Just going to the Super Bowl versus former team. Won Walter Payton Man of the Year in the same year. I mean, what else can this man do? The Walter Payton Man of the Year, it highlights him off the field. Amazing man off the field, and he gave an amazing story at that NFL Honors. Now let's move on to our Game of the Week. I have this Thursday the Bucks at home versus the 76ers. 76ers new and improved, adding James Harden, Paul Millsap. This Bucks team coming off the NBA championship. Joel Embiid coming off a monster jam on Jared Allen and a rollover win over the Cavs. I think, not going to give a prediction, but I think this will be a good game. Joel Embiid is my MVP candidate right now, playing out of his mind. But my game of the week is the Battle of Pittsburgh hockey. Philadelphia Flyers versus the Pittsburgh Penguins. Always a fun one to watch. Always a chippy battle. I'm going 4-2 Penguins. Penguins are playing very good hockey right now. As we both are Caps fans, they're both in our same division. Eh, could this turn to the tie? Or even could both teams lose? I hope so. From the Tough Takes Podcast, this has been Zach Green. Luca DeLosta, thank you for listening. And one more, who day, all day, especially on Sunday. <laughs>